everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading through the entire Bible together, chapter by chapter, out loud. We're looking at Exodus chapter 12 today. And so this, we were saying last time, begins a, a new section. We've had this narrative. It ends on this cliffhanger, uh, this dramatic tension, what, what's going to happen next. And now we get this description of of Passover, which is really just drawing out the tension because it's not just a bunch of instructions and say, okay, you got to you know, prepare the food this way and this is the recipe. Uh, no, everything in here, like we've seen so far, is so, uh, it's, it's so, I guess you might, you might say foreshadowing of what's going to happen. All the different aspects of everything is all showing what is about to take place when God shows up in this in this terrifying way, as we're going to see. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in the significance and pointing to God's action in, in this ritual. And so understanding ritual and, and not just how you can think about things and talk about things, but how you can participate in them with your actions that is what we're talking about today. And joining us, we've got Pastor Stephen Tice, pastor from Frona, Missouri, joining us here on the phone to talk about Exodus chapter 12. Good morning, brother. Good to have you back on again and to be looking at uh, this, I mean, such an important chapter in the whole of Scripture. Thank you. Good morning to you, too. Yeah, this is a, a fascinating feature for the people of Israel as a historical group, of course, God resets their calendar and says, you know, this is going to be the start of the year for you now. From now on, you measure time from this event. And, and at yeah. the same time, it's, it's the spiritual function of the Passover rescue that points us straight ahead to the Lamb of God, as John calls him, who takes away the sin of the world. So there's, there's so much of the fullness of the imagery of Jesus tied to the Passover event in Egypt, and then as a historical reference point, it's, it's what I like to call the, the same thing as Fourth of July, Memorial Day, and Thanksgiving <laughs> rolled into one for Americans. This is that event for the people of Israel, the beginning of independence, yeah. the beginning of, of a remembering of a death that, that brought freedoms. And at the same time, it's a rejoicing and praise to God for the gift of the nation that they have and, and the good things that come with it. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. Uh, <laughs> all those those holidays rolled into one. I mean, you, you see that, you know, just in the way that this, this, as you were kind of saying, even in the New Testament, this just constantly gets back, re referred back to, right? And, and uh you know, it, it's been observed by a number of people that is so, sort of similar to how Christians are always referring back to the, the cross, Easter, you know, th those three days. Uh, you have throughout the Old Testament, there's always this referring back to Passover. Everything is is compared to that and put to, back to that. And so uh, this idea of something that is to be remembered, something from generation to generation, something to be to be told something to be retold, um, you know, just that way that God shows up and does something, um, but in, in a way that's meant to be remembered and in a way that, as you were saying, also points ahead to what he will do again and continue mm -hmm. to do. Yeah, I think uh, to, to play with a little bit of the English language, it has the same affective emphasis due to its effect in our lives. 
and, and yeah. literally the event of the past defines our present and promises our future and so it has to be constantly pointed back to and and as you said it also points ahead so when we look at christ dying and rising we also have that promise of of a resurrection for us at the end of the age so this you know just a full image of god's redemptive work presented in the event of passover but it's also a, a moment in historical time where God did something in this world in history, which, of course, is also true mm-hmm. for us, uh, for the whole world, with Christ's birth, his, his life and death and resurrection. And then the one that most people are doubtful about is his coming again. That one, when it happens, is going to be an event in history, too, but it will be the defining moment for all of God's creation. So. Absolutely. Well, uh, we're going to see all the different ways that we can make those sorts of connections throughout this chapter, so we want to make sure we have plenty of time. Let's go ahead and get started. As we do so, brother, would you please open us up with a prayer? Absolutely. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of both heaven and earth, for you have indeed established for yourself a people. You have set apart your people to be for you a nation of priests and a holy nation, your own unique possession. We see this action carried out by you for the nation that became Israel, the sons of Jacob and their descendants. But you've also made this promise in Christ our Savior that we now become, as the Apostle writes, to you a people for your own possession, a royal priesthood. Bless us in seeing this sacrifice of the Lamb that brings about the redemption of your people and enable us then to share that good news in a way that points people to the one who is coming again. We wait anxiously for his return and yet desire to share his message before he does so that many might share in his holy life beyond the grave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, brother. Let's, uh, so let's turn to the text here. And uh, as we, let's go, we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter straight through. But before we do, um, we're looking here at, you know, Exodus 12. Is there anything that we should be thinking about in terms of, um, like, maybe the structure or keywords that we be, uh, maybe should be listening to, just to kind of help us process it as we read through it? Well, there's, there's a couple of things. Obviously, the word lamb would be significant. Uh, right. But the, the first day of... Uh, the first month of the year. This is a beginning, a new head of the year, if you will. And we can talk about the calendar of the the uh, people of Israel and, and modern Judaism, which has a, kind of flipped that on its ear. Um, hmm. And we're also going to see this, this point that this is an event to be recalled and repeated as a meal, not the actual right. rescue. That's a one-time event. But the meal will be repeated constantly. And certainly for us as Christians, there's a clear connection to oh, the yeah. New Testament. So, Oh, yeah. Right. yeah we'll, we'll have to talk about the word uh, itself there, Passover. But, uh, yes, but let's go ahead and read the text here, looking at Exodus chapter 12, here in the English Standard Version. Here it is from the top. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can, what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone you may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of the None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the Lord's it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord. 
as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened, unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native to the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Yeah, certainly uh, an epic chapter here. Um, th this, this is where sometimes you're, you're just like, oh, man, you know, we had a super short chapter last time, and we had a really, really big one here. Uh, some, sometimes the chapters feel a little bit uneven, so this is where you're especially feeling that. But, um, it, I mean, it is really interesting how th there is—the the chapter seems dominated by— the description of the feast of Passover, right? I mean, that's how it begins and how it ends. And even after we're told about the the plague itself, we go back to more instructions about the Passover. And and what's what's also fascinating is that for this being right, like the big doozy of a plague that's supposed to be like number ten that this is all going towards, yeah. it's described so summarily i mean it's just and he went out and did it pretty much you know and, and we're just and the next thing we know moses is talking to pharaoh again so i mean it's really it's really interesting that in this chapter so much attention is given to the festival the ritual um, but it's it's so summary the actual act of god yeah and what we're looking at there is god has kept his promise and he'll he'll do what he says he'll do now, the instruction is to be sure that the people continue to commemorate, recall, celebrate God's action. I think the, a couple of the, the key thoughts that jumped out at me as you were reading the description of the meal itself before yeah. the event of the killing was that they were to calculate, first of all, how many each person could eat and then gather together enough people to eat that whole animal. Yeah. Uh, 
and and it was the focus was on each person's participation being planned so that everyone knew they were included and and as they looked at that preparation the the marking of the door with the blood was then putting them inside the place where together they would eat the meal so that they were safe as they ate. But the sacrifice precedes the celebration. The sacrifice precedes the eating together. And yet the plan includes each person being covered both by the blood of of the animal marking the door and each person participating in the benefit of the the sacrifice. So there's a, a... a focus on the whole rather than on the individual that's going on here. And I think for us as Christians, that's still an important part of the life of the Church. And I say this, my my concern always comes back to North American Christianity, Americans in particular, because of our our social focus on rights and privileges and liberties. We tend to be idealizing individualism right. rather than the corporate nature of the Church together. And this, you know, we we continually have that problem. The Israelites had it too, of course. But the sure. the meal itself has this characteristic of you'll you'll roast it over the fire. You don't boil it, and and it's not going to be a a uh, what should we say carefully prepared Epicurean meal. <laughs> yeah, no. It's yeah. a cook it quick, eat it now. You're leaving town. Yeah. Or well, you know, and, are involved there. Y- yeah, well, and and the uh, I really appreciate your comments here on this being a, a, a communal meal, and and how we very often fail to appreciate that as individualists in the modern era and in the Western world. And uh, it's probably a good time as any to talk about the word itself. There, um, you know, because because it's a really interesting connection that we that we wind up with. Then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so we we have this term, you know, uh, Passover. And, uh, you know, I mean, Passover, you know, itself, um, it, it seems to kind of be very intuitive of the story, right? The idea, I think, that you've got the, you know, the angel of death, he, he goes, you know, or, I mean, here it's it's called the, the destroyer, and we don't want to talk about mm-hmm. that more. Um, but, you know, you, you got this destroyer, I mean, God, in some form, in, in a way, ultimately, who who goes out into Egypt, but then he, he passes over right the the houses where the israelites are so you know that's uh you know that makes that makes sense but the thing is i think what we what we miss is that uh, at least english speakers anyway is that the hebrew word is um is uh, pesach and pesach is where we get the greek word then pas uh, you know pascha or um where you get in spanish even modern spanish today um pasqua and uh, what, what's what's fascinating about that, and like so this won't be any news to Spanish speakers, but like when we, when we say Pascua, um, that's the word that we use for, uh, well, particularly Easter, yeah. Uh, but but also even in fact Christmas, <laughs> um, which which is uh, says something about the connection between Easter and Christmas. But yeah, so our our modern uh, celebration as Christians of of Easter. Uh, which is ultimately in the communal uh, meal of the mm-hmm. supper, right? Is actually literally the same word <laughs> as Passover. It's the Passover. It is, and and of course, w- well, we easily pass over this fact 
Notice what I did there. Uh, Christ was actually at the meal commanded to be observed every year from now on with his disciples when he instituted what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, but it was part of a whole week process culminating finally in the Sabbath rest the day after the meal. And, And so God frees his people from slavery and gives us this new rest that we have in Christ. And, of course, the early Christian church didn't have the word Easter. They continued to use the word Pascha. Right. Well, that's, that's right. And, um, well, I mean, you know, of course, Easter is, is uh, <laughs> it's just a word that we borrowed, um, you know, in the, in the kind of pagan Anglo-Saxon context, right? Um, just was uh, kind of the spring festival, and, you know, Easter winded up being in the spring. And so, we just kind of borrowed the term um, in the English language, but but right, like I, like I was saying, like you know, in other languages, you know, like, like Spanish, for example, they, they still use the word Passover. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that that really that really is something. And of course, uh, you look at you know, we looked at the Gospel of John, and we, we saw there how I mean, and you were mentioning the Gospel of John, you know, just how in there, you know, he's called the Lord is the Lamb of God, and and is just deliberately referred to and pointed to as the Passover. And yep. so uh, you ha- you have all the connections um and, and so it really it really is something and and so you know when you have this this whole talk about you know atonement um and you know in in theological circles you know it, it's always like a debate you know and it's like you know oh like uh, you know how much is like atonement theology like a a later development and these are the sorts of things that theologians debate about sometimes but I mean, it goes back to Passover, and <laughs> I mean, there's it, pretty clear atonement idea here. It's very strong, and it, it's stronger when you remember that there are slaves in Egypt, and God has sent Moses to let them, to lead them out to worship him in the wilderness, and nine previous times God has used a plague, and as verse 12 puts it, to punish all the gods of Egypt. Yeah. All of them. And now the tenth plague is finally that last god, the son of Pharaoh, dies. Right. Who is judging the Egyptians, is also teaching the Israelites that he is the only god to be worshipped. All the other gods that people espouse finally are under his power and control. And, of course, that immediate truth was picked up by all the people in, in Egypt, both the Israelites and Egyptians, as each of their gods is mocked by one of the plagues. But this final last plague, the completed plague, is the ultimate God uh, replacement is actually slain. Right. Yeah, and, and that, it is really interesting. We've talked a, li- a little bit about that, how uh, on, on the one hand, and, and we saw this in this chapter as well, There's the, you actually have the connection to seven days, and we haven't talked about mm-hmm. that. But there's so there's creation overtones here in this chapter. Uh, and also throughout the the plague sequence that we have, but there's the connections to those those pagan gods, those gods of Egypt. And even though in the text you never get anything as clear as like, and then the Lord smote the the god Geb, and then he smote Nut, right? It didn't say that, uh, but. Uh, like, like you were saying, that there's just there's so uh, many connections that would have been obvious to Egyptians, where right. you know a- animals like like cattle, um, animals like frogs had particular significance 
and connections to certain gods. Uh, mm-hmm. They they were they were getting the message, uh, and here it's just underscored very clearly right there in verse twelve. Right, you know, I and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. You know, so that if if we haven't been getting the message, God's saying that that's what I've been up to. By the way, uh, <laughs> but uh, we want to talk a little bit more about that this judgment of the pagan gods in, in a minute here. But we got to take our break now. Everybody, hang on. We're looking at Exodus chapter twelve here on Thy Strong Word. Be right back. This is a test of the emergency alert system. This has been a test of the emergency alert system. Part of music's grace is that it can say and do at the same time. It can say we need help and at the same time help us. It can sing about comfort while comforting us. And when it calls us to hope, it also gives hope. Experience it on the next Sing for Joy. Sundays at noon on KFUO. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. strong word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Exodus chapter 12 today. A lot of things going on in this chapter. If you have a question or a comment for our guest here, we've got Pastor Stephen Tice, pastor from Froma, Missouri, joining us talking about this chapter, both the plague and the Passover participation in it, that Passover. We saw that that, that Pesach, uh, Pascua, word that we get um easter and the lord's supper and even christmas connected to a lot of lot of connections if we thought there weren't already a lot if a question for us give us a call 1-800-730-2727 or if you're in st louis 314-821-0850 you can also send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or just type a question or comment into the live stream box there on facebook facebook.com slash aj.espinosa. I want to thank our underwriters of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Thank you for your support. Their website, lhfmissions.org. So we were, yeah, we were just talking about this verse here that you pointed out for us here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And uh, th- that's, so yeah, we, we've been saying that this is kind of what's been going on the whole time, but it's interesting that 
in, in some ways, this Passover event is a summary judgment on all the gods all at once. So how does how does that work? Would you say like that that we we can see all the gods being judged in this particular plague? Well, there's there's the the very obvious event called death. The yeah. other plagues have led to uh, disease and frustration and problems, and of course the hail, killing animals, livestock, etc. But here, the the death itself is the only part of the plague. There's no. Yeah physical, visible cause, and suddenly death comes to every household and every firstborn animal. So that the Lord of life, the creator of the universe, is saying, I preserve your life. Don't lean on other sources thinking they are the source of life. You know, our our modern culture, we have this idol identified by some people as an idol, of course, called science. The idea that hmm. science will lead us to the knowledge of, of all truth, and therefore we can find all the solutions to all life's problems. All that we need is science. Hmm. And, and you've been hearing this phrase occasionally on the news reports lately, the science is unclear. Hmm. But see, the hmm. God of creation is not unclear. He's emphatically hmm. clear. I am the source of life, and I give life in great abundance to those who recognize it comes from me. There's a joy. For those who fail to see it comes from God, he still pours it out, but they don't benefit in the same way that those who recognize him do. And so this this passing over uh, reminded me of, of what God says later for the Israelites when they enter the land of promise. And as he says in verse 26, when you enter the land, as I have already said, you will. The word of God says it, therefore it will happen. The Lord speaks and it, and it takes place back to Genesis 1. And, and then he says, just as I say to you, I will take you to the land I promised your ancestors. When you get there, you do this meal again. Don't fall into the gods you are surrounded by. And that's still true for us today. So many gods, not maybe labeled as gods, but certainly the thing to which people look for good. We have the one who gives life and then who gave his life, putting Christ back into the center of the Passover, that we might be God's people now and forever. And, of course, there's the whole image of Exodus and Jesus leading the people out of slavery into the new promised land when we move from Moses to Yeshua in the next book. At the end of the first five books, we pick up that other theme. But um, yeah. just looking at this, this firstborn that in, the new, in the new land, the firstborn has to be redeemed or given to the Lord as well. Yes, right. It's an occurring event that says the firstborn is mine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, all right, and, and then you get those instructions. Uh, I mean, firstborn animals. It's like you either you either sacrifice it or you, you or you redeem it, and then you you well, there's no option. You don't get to sacrifice your firstborn children. You right. have to redeem them. Uh, but that that connection between yeah, the death and the firstborn, and that that highlighting of death, and I, I think that's really interesting because I, I do think that this particular plague is highlighting death. Um, especially death conceived of as, as human death um, in a very strong way, right? That uh, when you actually get the, the description of it, it's really interesting the way, the way it's put. It's the, the kind of double negative. There was not a house where there was not like a dead body, right? Like, like as, as a way of just describing the, the, the emphatic description of the totality of death coming to all. And, um, I mean, that, that is interesting because you're right, especially at first. I mean, 
of course, the plagues were ominous and certainly pointing towards death, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, even even from the very beginning, even the snakes being swallowed up, um, I think that's an image of them being killed, <laughs> right? Um, you know, the, the fish dying and, and, and the plague. So like, there's lots of things that were pointing towards it. But yeah, you didn't get human death till the end. Though I, I want to ask you about that. Um, it is interesting at first, because I, I was wondering about that. The the only time that I think I think this is right that it says in the text that a person or people died um, was in the hailstorm. I think right. that, that's where you get that it strikes down, and that's that strike word like he uses um, here, like he strikes the firstborn um, yeah. of the Egyptians. So you get that with the hailstorm, and then what's interesting, and, and this is something I was just actually looking at uh, not long ago here in the description of the locusts. Uh, so we had this like two times ago. Uh, mm-hmm. He he, he uh, that's Pharaoh calls Moses back and he says, um, "Remove this death from me." And I looked at that, and that's actually just the literal word for death there. So, and these last few plagues, death, got, I mean, just kind of got bigger and bigger, and now it's just really, mm-hmm. really here. I mean, do you think there's something there about the the link of death? And and then I don't I don't know is. Is uh, this Passover plague connected, you think, in some ways to the plagues of locusts and and hail in a way that the other plagues are more distant, perhaps? Well, I, I think as you move further from the first plague on, you have the hardening of the heart by, by Pharaoh. Yeah. And the, the way God calls us to repentance is he sends plagues among us. Right. You know, the... the the virus that's now a pandemic in the world. This is a call to repentance. Nothing, nothing else. We can all emphatically say it's a call to repentance, recognizing that death comes to us. But Pharaoh was refusing to hear the clear spoken word of Moses, let God's people go that they might worship me. And as the death became, for lack of a better label, um, more generalized, it was still tied to a recurring phenomenon that they had experienced in their lives before. Hailstorms had killed people before. Locust plagues had killed people before. This one is new, and this one is invisible. Right. This one has only one explanation, the intervention of the God of the Israelites, who who's basically says, the last thing he says before striking all the gods of Egypt there back in verse 12 was, I am Yahweh. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the God to be worshipped. And, right. and tying back to the fact that it's only early, earlier in Exodus that God lets Moses know this is the name by which he is called. That name now ties that back to Moses discovering who the true God is, so that when Moses sees it, Moses is reminded, when I spoke at the burning bush... This is the God who said, I will bring you out, and this is how you know I'll bring you out. And that very night, they leave town. So, this- Yeah, and I, I, think, I, think, I think so. That, I mean, and, and again, uh, so that, that was, uh, you know, so we're, we're talking about this uh, executing judgment on all the gods here, and I still want to talk a little bit more about that, but we, we can come back to it in a minute. But th- this point about death, like you were saying, becoming generalized, uh, mm-hmm. I, really, I really like that because— with the hailstorm, right? It was it was a really unique situation um, for the plague sequence, anyway, because God 
gives them fair warning through Moses and they get an option basically like, Hey, if you want to listen, you can Mm -hmm. take your, your servants and your animals inside, right? Get inside. And so it's only the ones who don't listen who die. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to the locusts, I mean, it is interesting. We, we saw there's, it's extremely ominous. There's all this darkness and disappearing going on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they, they cover the land and there's this description of, you know, you just can't see anything. There's, it's a, this dense, thick storm. Um, and, and like I said, like he actually, Pharaoh says, remove this death from me. Cause now actually it wasn't just us, some of their crops, but all of them that have been eaten, right. Even the, the their, their primary staple ones. So, I mean, it's like the, the death is like getting nearer and nearer. And then of course the darkness is pretty ominous. Uh, but here it, it's, it's here and it's in actually in every house is what it says. Right. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, just that, that line there, there was not a house where someone was not dead. Um, that, that double negative to just in the most emphatic Hebrew way possible, describe every single one, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think so. I think that it points to a little bit of the fact that, uh, there, there was not a death and darkness God in the Egyptian pantheon in the same way that there was for the the sun and, and light and Absolutely. life and renewal. I mean, oh, there, yeah. there were, there were, I mean, don't get me wrong. All kinds of the gods were associated with the afterlife and the underworld and judgment. I mean, it, it seems like all of them get associated with that, like on some level, but, mm-hmm. but there's, but there's no God that really has like the prominence of, of raw. That is like your, death and darkness god that they like bow down and worship to and build temples for right there's not there's not like a real correspondence there even though some gods kind of go in that direction so uh to have death and darkness show up in such a big way seems very anti-egyptian and uh and i and i think also too uh, that the idea of annihilating the first god there, mm-hmm. there was in, in the in the Egyptian mythology this idea that the first god is the one who is the one from uh, from whom everything else came, right? Like I mean, if you think of, uh, like for instance, like Amun, one of the the myths there, who's like the first god who emerges from the chaos, dark chaos waters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there he is, he's the first god, and then from him come uh, your next two gods in the sequence, uh, Shu and and uh, Tefnut, and then from them come gab and, and nut and or newt and it goes on from there but like everything comes from him and, and it, there's these egyptian mythologies that basically like everything is kind of ultimately from amun ra this this first god so if you kill the first god the firstborn right mm-hmm. the firstborn from chaos I mean, that, that was what he was called even it's like you're killing all of them right yeah it's, it's almost like saying you've got the wrong foundation and your foundation is, is destroyed, whatever you built on it's crumbling. Which, of course, the New Testament picks up on completely. So we, we see this, this God who brings order out of chaos, who says, let there be light, and there was light, responding to the, the, the Egyptian mythology that claims the first one to come out of the chaos was God. No. Chaos was reordered by the God who was there before there was anything. So yeah, yeah. No, it, it really, it really is fascinating when you when you go and then compare like the Egyptian mythology we were just talking about to Genesis one. How you, there's um, 
I think some important similarities because it seems like there's a little bit of deliberate dissimulation of, hey, we're not saying what the Egyptians say, right? Right. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit of that. Um, but there's also um, just just some really important differences, like you were saying. And uh, yeah, in fact, I was I mean, I was just looking at that and. And I, I don't know if this is right, but I, I'm just going to throw it out there. I was looking at Genesis 1 again, and when the, the way that he says it, you know, let there be light, and then there was light, and then you get this line here, and he separated the light from the darkness. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if, like, the, the picture that we're supposed to have is that, like, you know, God creates this big, bright thing, but then from the great, bright thing, he actually pulls the darkness to one side— and pulls the light to the other side uh, distinctively. Like, I mean, and this is, I don't know why, but it was the first stupid analogy that came to mind. Like, if you have a bowl of cereal, right, and it's just there, and you take your spoon and you gather up, like, the cereal pieces, like, you know, in your spoon, that leaves all the milk kind of, like, on the other side. So if, if that's right, then the darkness actually comes from the light that God made, which... I mean, okay, so like I said, I don't know if that's right or not, but I mean that it, it's a it'd be the exact opposite of basically every mythology in sure. the Eastern world. Yeah, and then and I think that's the proper place to take that contrast or comparison is that the God who brings order out of chaos creates light so that darkness can be identified, but that without light. You know, what's the definition of darkness? The absence of light, right? Yeah, yeah. Definition of light. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's right. It, it, it makes sense, really, like, in a lot of profound ways, um, you know. So, but I want to, I want to, I, I could go on Genesis 1 forever, but I want to turn to some questions here that we got. We got some questions over the, uh, on email, and also some questions coming in on Facebook. So, uh, we were just looking at this verse here, verse uh, 30, where you get the emphatic statement, you know, there, there was not a house where someone was not dead. So, this, this question is kind of specifically related to the firstborn here. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you, you have in verse 29, like, like we said, it's such a short description, right? Um, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Is this supposed to be all the firstborn uh, sons or all the firstborn in general? Um, and, and I guess for that matter, we might just, you know, consider the, the element too. I, I think we, I think, I think we intuitively think of children here, but I mean, firstborns could be, I mean, old men as well. So who exactly is getting affected here? This is the entirety of the the land of Egypt, which has enslaved the Israelites for several hundred years, well, a couple hundred anyway. Right. Um, and, and the ones being singled out are anyone not covered by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah. And this is the key concept. It is not who you are, it's who covers you that gives you protection. So that any Israelite who didn't mark their door would also have a dead firstborn. As it's right. There's a comment as as they prepare to leave that that going out with them out of Egypt, the phrase is, a mixed multitude also went up with them. Right. These are are what you and I would call non-Israelites, you know, other slaves perhaps, people who chose to leave Egypt for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Those households, if they had heard 
and marked their door with the blood of a lamb, mm-hmm. it would have been preserved. It wasn't your birth that gave you preservation. It wasn't your ethnic origin. It was being covered by the mark of the blood of the lamb on the door. And Right. Well, and, that, and that gets back to, um, I mean, the, the collective thing, like you were saying, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's very, it's very much like, you know, you think of, it's the household, right? And, and Joshua says, you know, well, as for me and my household, right? Um, or, you know, you, you get in the New Testament, you know, the, the word gets preached and what's the response? Well, like, you know, be well, well I want to be baptized, me and my whole household, right? So right. The, the, the idea being, uh, you know, the faith as a place where the, as a place, in fact, where the word is, where faith is, right? Uh, not necessarily a place where, or just, I mean, it's all about the, like the individual, right? And mm-hmm. like uh, one of, the, and and uh, circumcision is actually like a really good comparison to that because, of course, um, e- even though it was only the males who were reckoned as uh, well, who actually were circumcised, mm-hmm. the the whole nation, right, was actually reckoned as circumcised. Yeah. And uh, I'll, you know, take a close reading at some of the circumcision passages, and the 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 message is that your household had better be circumcised, and it falls on the household and the head um, right. if he's not circumcising his his male sons. Yeah, and and uh, you mentioned this this activity, which is also then added as when you celebrate in years to come in your household, if anybody's going to participate in the meal, they have to have been circumcised. They must already be in the covenant relationship. Mm -hmm. Strangers among you, hired servants, even a slave you've bought whom you've not circumcised, they don't get this meal. They eat every other meal in your house, but not this one. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's, um, and and that's super interesting. And I'm, I really want to talk about the circumcision point um, a little bit more, uh, mm-hmm. but but like so just um, to just briefly kind of wrap up the, the this one question here, uh, yeah. So I, I think the the emphasis is is not so much on like which individuals um, or which not, uh, though I, I think there is a reasonable argument to be made that we are talking about firstborn sons, insofar mm-hmm. as. Uh, so much of the role of the the sun god in particular is to renew uh, and to yeah yeah it's kind of this recreation idea and so what you see um, is that the firstborn and this is the way that the psalms talk about it too um, is this this is destroying the first fruits of the Egyptian people right mm-hmm. like the first fruits of their strength the way that um, Jacob talks about his son Reuben right uh, your sure. firstborn son is the one who uh, you know, t- inherits half. He it, it carries on the name. He, I mean, it, he's the one who basically is ensuring that the generation, the next generation, happens. He renews the family line, mm-hmm. and so in in that sense, it could actually make a lot of sense that we're we're talking about the firstborn sons in particular. Uh, not not because there's like a, you know, like they're they're worse off or that you know the, the the girls are innocent or something, but but just because of uh, perhaps what it represents or what it means. And uh, the question online was talking about a comparison to you know a special offering for the firstborn boys, right. in the tribe of Levi. So I mean, yeah, there's there's yeah, I think there's some comparisons that that you can make right there. Um, the the other uh, some of the other questions here. So turning, uh, we we want to talk about the actual meal. Maybe we can just kind of talk about the meal uh, mm-hmm. kind of in summary here. The, the details are pretty interesting. I, I think that 
you know, there's this idea of you got to eat, kind of eat this in haste, right? You got to be dressed, ready to go. <laughs> and uh, we're not going to leaven the bread because that takes too long, <laughs> right? right? Like, uh, and, and all of that's pointing to how they're driven out in haste, right? And that's the description, right? The, 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 the Egyptians are like, we're all going to die at this rate. Go now, please hurry before it's too late for us all. So uh, there's all of that. I think that, that kind of ties together neatly. But there's some of it, you know, that's like, you know, uh, the details about you know why why do they have to cook it by fire and not by boiling or or raw right wouldn't be eating a raw be faster so there's there's details like like that and, and so what are some of the other you know these other details about the food pointing to well there's partly the, uh, the certainly the idea of the sacrifice that God has coming up as He institutes the sacrificial system it's all it's almost all burnt offering although okay. there is there is a boiled offering but the yeah. the other thing is. These are people who are wandering and have no permanent home as of yet. And so you don't have a, a hearth on which you cook and boil because you don't have a metal pot you hang over the fire, but you have an open fire where you roast something. I'm going to use the, the image from camping or traveling where you have no resource other than open flame. And the yeah. most efficient way to cook something when you're traveling we don't do it this way anymore, but the most efficient way is, is to roast it. But yeah. it also says whatever remains, you burn up. Right. Well, you can't burn up anything if you boiled it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's true, right? And, uh, yeah, I think that actually so both those things actually point to the haste. And then also I think the idea too, right, like if they if they had leftovers, what's that say? Well, they were eating it slowly. They were taking their time. They were like, oh, let me just kind of nibble on it, right? Um, no, they're supposed to, I mean, kind of, you know, wolf it down and be done with the thing. And so by burning it up in the morning and, hey, there's nothing left, that kind of also emphasizes the, the haste. So I, I think actually like a lot of the things are all very consistent when you take a little bit more detail to look at. Um, another like food question, though, it says there in verse 39, uh, you know, they, they've been planning for all of this, but it seems like in verse 39, it's like they they didn't prepare any provisions for themselves. Like, why, why is that? They, they knew this was going to happen, and they got all the gold and silver, right? Well, they got the gold and the silver, and that was uh, the material that's going to be used for building the tabernacle and building the, the items for worship down the road. <laughs> God's, yeah. God's preparing them for the worship relationship with material goods they can't get in the desert. He'll feed them. The that's right. Yeah, that's right. Needed to prepare and build the elements for worship in the tabernacle. God gets them from the Egyptians. The other thing that I thought of was the, the statement Jesus says: "One does not plunder a rich man unless first he goes into the rich man's house and binds him." Powerful yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. This is the plundering of the house of the powerful one by binding him first, right? And, and binding him to the judgment that brings death, and now they plunder. Now they carry away. Well, God's the one really carrying away. He's carrying away his people. He's leading them out and rescuing them from the, the, the house of a strong man whom he's bound by killing the firstborn. So there's all that, kinds that's of... That's right. Jesus, when Jesus uses a, an, an Im, image, a, a parable, and any kind of, a, I'll use the word illustration or, or uh, analogy in the New Testament, you almost always find the actual physical event in the Old Testament. He takes an Old Testament event and puts it into a word picture to show that That's God right. already did this once. You can trust him to do it again. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to see, too, how once you get into the wilderness wandering, it's like kind of the opposite of the plagues of Egypt. And, you know, you, you know, God sends locusts that cover the land and eat all the food. Well, he's mm-hmm. going to send a bunch of quail that are going to cover the land and be the food, right? So there's going Absolutely. to be those opposites. And like you were saying, they had time to get the, uh, the things that they weren't going to be able to get in the wilderness. But God's kind of showing that priority, too. Like, hey, you get the stuff for me, and I will take care of you. So I, I think there's a lot of like, really good reasons that you're bringing in there. And it kind of answers indirectly one of the questions we got over the Internet about, you know, hey, you know, we're looking at these texts with all these connections. How do you, like, you know, put the best construction on it and, and try to, you know, try to understand it the right way? And the difference between that and just kind of, you know, kind of spinning it to mean whatever you want and connecting the dots however you want, right? And I, th- I think you're kind of just illustrating it, actually. We've only got like a minute here, but, uh, you know, it, it's when you take the whole thing in context and you're, you're looking at the local context, uh, you're looking at, you know, like what it would have meant um, for the people who were hearing it first when you connect it to the New Testament. Like you're, you're just you're just kind of letting it be there and letting all the dots connect to each other and then making sure you're connecting the dots to Christ. Um, and, and when you when you have all of those connections in place, you can feel pretty confident about your interpretation. But mm-hmm. when your interpretation's you know way off in left field and kind of disconnected from most of the rest of Scripture, that's when you have a you should have alarm bells going off, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, very very good question that you know we could spend a whole hour talking about, but just briefly. So, uh, man, my goodness, all all out of time. I wanted to talk about the circumcision there, but I mean, just suffice it to say that whole idea of you know a sign of blood um, then yeah. kind of covering over in the same way that, that Christ's blood just covers over us. I mean, it's all, it's all connected like that. So mm-hmm. brother, just so many good things to talk about. I uh, can't talk about them all, but I always enjoy our conversations. I think you really helped us elucidate some of those points, um, you know, making the connections about you know, God's supremacy and then just the foreshadowing to Christ. So thank you so much. And I look forward to having you on again real soon. All right. Thanks. God's blessings with you and all those hearing what we have to say. Thank you, brother. Everybody, that was Pastor Stephen Tice, pastor from Frona, Missouri. Yeah, just so many good things to be talking about in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, moving on to 13, and we're going to be—I mean, it's it's more actually on the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, a little bit before we get to the Pillars of Cloud and Fire. So we'll have a little bit more of a chance to talk about these things we didn't have a chance to talk about today. But until then, everybody, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.